0: Well, as you know, during the annual holiday season, we are inundated with advertisements of products that we maybe knew existed, but did not know how much we now need them because of the price now made available to us, or perhaps that we did not know that existed. My wife, through one of her relatives just introduced me to the webpage, Timu, now that's a black hole. Before I know it, 14 objects later, I had ordered. It was such a good deal. How could I say no? I'm just trying to steward God's money well. Buying gifts for everybody. People I don't even know who they're going to be for yet. I was buying gifts for. The reality, though, is that as these businesses, web pages, shops, manufacturers, they often spend millions of dollars on advertising in the hopes of making their products seen especially appealing to your eyes. They want to get your attention. They want to arrest you for a moment and get you to sort of have a stutter in your step. You are headed this direction, going to make this decision, but now let's maybe consider otherwise. This is why they use such exaggerating claims and such superlative, subjective terms like, this is delicious. Well, to who? This is the best. Says who besides your mom? This is perfect. By whose standard? Uh, More often than not, we can realize over time, such people cannot keep up with such claims and they often prove to be false. Stories are often of guilty, false advertising. These companies make such false advertisements that are either untrue and that they don't have the data to support it, or they knowingly are untrue, but they twist the facts in such a way to mislead people. Consider some examples. Gerber Good Start Gen- Gentle Formula. Gerber made unsubstantiated claims that it's Good Start Gentle Formula prevented children who took it from developing allergies. Where was that when I was a baby? Could use that by now. Well, it's a false claim. And a lawsuit was filed by the Federal Trade Commission that forced Gerber to not make such a claim. The Luminosity app, in its ads, Lumos Labs claimed its app, which offers users access to games and brain teasing exercises that would help prevent Alzheimer's disease and help students perform better in school and make you make your bed and eat your vitamins and all kinds of claims. Maybe the last were a bit exaggerated. The company was fined for $2 million by the Federal Trade Commission because there's no proof to support such claims. Vitamin water owned by Coca-Cola falsely claimed that its vitamin water products could promote healthy joints, reduce the risk of eye disease, and have other health benefits. That was all found to be false, and they had to change their labeling. Frosted Mini Wheats by Kellogg's company claimed that their Mini Wheats improved children's attentiveness by 20%. That's pretty specific. But attentiveness did not increase as much as promised, and the vast majority of children who ate the cereal and they had to agree to a $4 million settlement and stop using those ridiculous ads. Then there's the Palm Pomegranate juice. Sorry to maybe burst some of your bubbles here. Palm Wonderful claimed its fruit juice helped reduce the risk of medical issues such as heart disease, prostate cancer, and other issues. These claims were not backed by research and were ruled to be deceptive and had to be removed. Eclipse Gum, the Wrigley Company, said it's gum with its magnolia bark extract. Would kill germs that cause bad breath. Also unfounded, they had to pay $7 million to settle a class action lawsuit. Sketcher Shape Up Shoes, Sketcher said in advertisements that Shape Up Shoes would help wearers lose weight and tone their muscles. And we should all buy those, I suppose. Except their claims were deemed deceptive and they had to settle for a $50 million lawsuit. But then there's the airborne dietary supplement. I bought it, you bought it, you maybe still use it. Airborne claimed it would help ward off harmful bacteria and germs, preventing ailments like the flu and cold, but there's actually no evidence to support the assertion. In essence, this was just simply marketing regular vitamin supplements. And they had to pay $23 million. And then there's the Volkswagen, German car manufacturer. They claimed its diesel cars were environmentally friendly when in fact Volkswagen vehicles were knowingly rigged to cheat emission tests. The company has so far paid out billions of dollars in settlements. I mean, at some point you're like, is anything true? Can I believe any claim that's being made? But yet it continues to work. It's like we all want it to work. We all want it to be true. And we don't want the facts to get in the way. We are suckers for it, and it happens over and over and over again. Well, this morning, we see an example of deception, a case, if you will, of false advertising, but it's not some consumer caught up in today's shopping. It's the people of God caught up in a military conquest or they encounter some other people who give them a deceptive lie and they fall for it. And it has long consequences. And what we wanna learn through it is why did they fall for it? If you've not done so, please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter nine. Joshua chapter nine, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the book of Joshua. We went last week through Joshua seven and eight kind of a first attempt, and finally a second successful attempt of conquering AI, what happened there and the lessons learned. And we come into chapter nine this morning. You'll notice in the beginning verses of chapter nine, the response of a number of the people groups to the military victory that the Israelites had. Describes this military victory in the very end of chapter eight, verses 25 and following. And it says in Joshua chapter nine, verses one and two, the following. It says, as soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So what you have sort of setting us up here is you've got this military conquest of the Israelites in Joshua chapter eight, that was successful. You've got a bunch of kings now, but they're like, you know what? Maybe if we take a different military strategy, we can win. Now here's why this is important. Because I want you to kind of get a feel for the sort of the cadence. You have in Joshua chapter two, the story of Rahab, where she's like, hey, we've heard about you guys from 40 years ago, what you did in leaving Egypt and going through the Red Sea. We've been scared of you ever since. And Rahab turns from that fear of God to a desire to worship God. Then after the people of Israel go through the Jordan River, as the Jordan River is miraculously stopped by God, it then says that all the people feared. And then kind of as we see as a surprise, the things that they do before they then take on Jericho. And then Jericho is like the last thing we'd ever expect for a Jericho military conquest. Like, hey, let's have a seven day worship concert March around the, the building, the, the village walls, if you will, once a day until the last day. Let's do it seven times, blow the trumpets, and the walls are going to fall down, and then we'll charge in. And at the end of that, people are like scared to death. But then you have, in Joshua chapter 7, you then have actually military failure. And we learned last week why that is, because of Achan, because of how he did not honor the Lord. And now the people are like, you know what? Maybe we stand a chance. The jury's out on the Israelites. You maybe can't defeat them. The Red Sea kind of intimidated us. This town of Jericho overwhelmed us. We were fearful. But the first failure that they had against Ai, which is by the, by, by the way, is it says only 12,000 people. Well, that, that's, maybe we stand a chance. So now in Joshua chapter nine, verses one and two, all of these kings get together, of these tribal groups, and they're like, you know what, let's get together. We can take them on. If we band together, we can do this. Well, that's the context, but there's one group who thinks otherwise. It's not convinced. And now I want you to listen, follow along in your Bibles, Joshua chapter nine, verses three through 13. But there's a point of contrast to these previous kings. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, I Meaning, when they won the second time in Ai, verse four, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, it's like another name for the Gibeonites, "Uh, perhaps you live among us. And how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where'd you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for he have, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Astrath. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. Behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out for the very long journey. Now stop there. All right, so verses one and two is one strategy how to deal with the Israelites. Verses three to 13 is another strategy. Verses one and two is a bunch of tribal groups together with their rulers, their kings saying, hey, we can fight against them. And verses three to 13 is another group saying, we don't stand a chance. Now this group, interestingly, is only about six miles from Jerusalem. They're only about 25 miles from Gilgal where where the people of Israel are at the time. (laughs) They are smack dab in the middle of this land in the mountainous area. And they honestly do something you kind of think is kind of like, well, that's pretty creative. It's creatively deceptive. They basically put on costumes. You notice how often the phrase was used worn out, worn out, worn out. The worn out sacks, the worn out clothes, the the worn out sandals. They present themselves as having come from a very far distance. We left our houses, we left our places, we had fresh bread, but, but look how long of a journey it's been. All of our supplies are worn out. And then originally they're like, Wait, this doesn't seem like this makes sense. where are you from? And he's like, hey, look at how the condition of our bread, that shows you how long ago we first got it. We see here with the Gibeonites is if you look at it at first glance, it actually kind of looks impressive. The disguise was an attempt to convince these Jewish people having come from far away, that they were not to be feared, to be trusted. Looks pretty ingenious. But here are some things to know. You're like, why would Israelites even consider this? Because earlier, you don't need to turn there, but earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God tells the Israelites, what do you do when you encounter other people groups? He's basically saying, when you encounter other people groups who are not in the promised land, You basically make a treaty with them for peace. You say, hey, we don't want to mess with you. You don't want to mess with us. Trust us on that one. But if we agree to a treaty, we'll leave you alone and we'll forever respect that agreement. And somehow the Gibeonites have come to learn this. But I want you to consider the difference between the Gibeonites and Rahab. Rahab speaks from faith. The Gibeonites speak from flattery. Rahab is acknowledging God is with them. And she's interested in worshiping that God. The Gibeonites acknowledge God is with them and they're only interested in self-preservation. Rahab basically says, look, I have heard about you and your guys before and I have heard about your God and I want to worship your God. The Gibeonites are like, look, we have heard about you and your guys and therefore we want you to protect us. You can see this later in verse 24. What do we see here? Well, now that leads us to then the problem. It's what happens next in the next two verses. Verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions. Here it is, verse 14. But did not ask counsel from the Lord. Make a pen, a pencil, highlighter, mark that in your Bibles. The problem in chapter 9, it's like a beacon, an arrow pointing to this one verse. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. As a result, verse 15, Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is the issue, as is recorded in God's word, for God's people, generations, years later, here we are even today to learn from. It's not just simply historical occasion in the conversation. Countless of those have existed in history that are not recorded in God's word, but this one and the the timeline of what's happening here in the life of Israel is recorded that we might learn and not make the same mistake. What's happening here in the text, in Joshua chapter nine, verses three to 13 is, they investigated, but they did not pray. They asked their questions of the men, but they did not ask their questions of God. They trusted in their intuitions to guide them. They did not trust in God to guide them. That's the phrase here in verse 14. They did not ask counsel. They did not inquire of the Lord. Here's sort of the main point, you could say of the entire text of Joshua 9 today. The lack of prayer demonstrates self-reliance which will have lasting consequences. The lack of prayer demonstrates self-reliance which will have lasting consequences. I mean, what you're basically seeing here in the text with the Israelites is this sense, this sort of subtle belief I've got this under control. We can investigate the matter. We can see with our own eyes. We can ask with our own mouth. We can gather the data and we can make good decisions, which honestly is a pretty presumptuous thing to conclude if you're the Israelites. You've not had to bring a very good track record here, which is kind of a humbling reality of like people you think would get it, still don't get it. And you're like, oh, it's kind of like you and me. How many sermons have Lessons from God's word have we heard, and yet we can still struggle to obey those lessons. There is here a sense of self-reliance that comes out in this demonstration. They make decisions based on their own assessment of their own capacity to be confident in what's being decided. So let's turn this into a point of reflection for you. It's a question for your own consideration. Not what about the Israelites, what about you? Do you only pray when you second guess what you should do? Do you only pray when you second guess what you should do? How does that reflect actually what you do and how you make decisions? Now, listen to me, I'm not not talking about you standing at Evios for lunch with a bunch of us there and you're in line and you're like you're up next you're like what are you gonna decide like i i just need a moment i'm praying waiting for the lord to tell me chicken parmesan or the couscous bowl i'm not sure which one i should go with i'm just trying to figure that out don't rush this it didn't go well for them in joshua 9. i don't want that to happen for me i listen to what eric said That's not what I'm talking about here. What you see here is that prayer should be connected to decision-making, especially that correlates to consequences, both in effect, the significance of it, and the length of time of its consequences from such a decision. This is no small matter. This is an entire people group saying, hey... Would you make a commitment to us that'll last beyond even our lifetime? Your lifetime, my lifetime, that our kids and our grandkids, and our grandkids. That, that's like making a big decision. I mean, honestly, I wonder if you've even thought that much about, oh, I don't know, like who you're gonna marry? We're gonna go to school? What kind of financials? I mean, like, this is a significant decision. And they didn't think, you know what? We, I can gather the data, I can, we can talk amongst ourselves, we can make a sound decision. What ends up happening is that we often have decision-making without prayer. And I think that reflects one of three possibilities. Decision-making without prayer reflects either a sense of personal capacity. You think, I think we're that good. Secondly, a lack of belief in God Like, I just don't think God can help. I think God's kind of abandoned me on this one. I think it's kind of on me right now. Or maybe a more honest one. I don't pray because number three, a refusal to surrender to God, I don't know that I want to know God's will. I think if you and I are honest, there's a hiccup in our prayer life. It's because we're not ready to open our hands and say, God, what do you want? Your will be done, not mine. Sometimes it could be a lack of personal capacity, or excuse me, a sense of your own personal capacity, meaning you think you're capable of doing this on your own. Sometimes it's your lack of belief in God that he can actually do anything to help or refusal to surrender to God. Let's think about this for us as a church. Let's talk about this collectively as a congregation. I realize not everybody here are members of Grace Church, but for the members of Grace Church, think about this with me as a particular point of application and consideration for us. We make decisions as a church and our members meetings all the time. We make decisions of what members to bring in, assessing and deciding. We make decisions of money that God has given to us, that we have given, that others have given to us, of where to send that money, what ministries to support in Sweden and Ethiopia, with Faith Church. We make decisions about leadership. We made decisions a couple years ago about merging Miami Shores Baptist Church and Grace Church together. And oftentimes, to be, I hope, good leaders, we're communicating those big decisions before the day comes to make the decision so that you have not just a chance to learn of it and ask more questions if you don't understand it, all of that's true, but so you would begin to pray about it. Members of Grace Church, let me ask you, when you get those members meeting emails, is that a trigger for knowledge or is that a trigger for prayer? We want to be a praying people The we as the collective, you as individuals, all of us together, who are members of a church to pray for the decisions that we make. Now, to go back to the text, decisions have consequences. Look back to verse 16, Joshua 9. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they had lived among them. It just took three days to find out the truth. Verse 17, the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepharah, Beeroth, and Kirith-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the leaders. Verse 19, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live. Lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Verse 22, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us? saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us. Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand, whatever seems good and right in your sight to us to do it. To do to us, do it. Verse 26, he, so he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. What we're seeing here and verses 16 to the end of it, is really kind of, you could say categorically, living with the consequences of your decisions. Living with the consequences of your decision. That's really what's going on here. The decisions that they did not pray about, they now have to deal with the consequences of that. And you can kind of see what's happening here in the text. Verse 18, what's the first consequence? That people started to doubt and complain about their leaders. Oh, that is, to use a contemporary term, that is toxic. That is toxic. It does not matter how good your leaders are. If the people don't trust their leaders, those people are going nowhere. This is why I think we all have kind of a grave concern for the current state of our country. Because we're just seemingly at such a perilous time where it's like people don't trust leaders, leaders don't seem to be competent in their leadership. They have a sort of failure at every level and sort of in the relationship. The problem here in the text is part of the dynamic reality of what happened is the leaders, Joshua and others with them made a bad decision through the bad means of how they made the decision. I.e. did not pray. And one of the consequences of that, their own people now dabbled them. Joshua had to live with that. I think sometimes when we make bad decisions, we, understandably, come to own it, either by conscience, we're bothered by it, Or by consequence, we see bad what happened. And we go to God and we say, rightly so, God, I messed up. Forgive me. Be gracious to me. Not a bad prayer request. But we then wish what would happen next is, God, could you erase all the bad consequences of what's about to come? That's often how God teaches us the best. So that that lesson that we said in prayer that we learned, that we we would then really learn in life to follow. Joshua has to deal with this and the people have to deal with this. The second reality is not just that the people start to doubt and complain about their leaders, but verses 22 to 27, the people of Israel collectively have to live with the consequences of their decisions and they just can't claim, oh, that was the wrong decision. They made a vow to the Lord to keep it. Do you know why, and I mean this with all due respect and to not be provocative, but to be biblical. Do you know why it's significant that we as pastors teach the Christians of our assembly here why we want to be careful that you wisely, biblically, in community, date, Christians. It's not as an act of judgment to those of you who are not Christians, by no means. But because God says in his word clearly that Christians are not to be unequally yoked. It seems like a weird term, right? But this idea kind of using Old Testament imagery, that a follower of Yahweh would not marry somebody who was not a follower of Yahweh because they have two different sort of worldview commitments. But a lot of times Christians are saying, listen, I won't marry them, but I'll just date them. Well, then what do you think dating is? Just a vehicle to address your own loneliness? Well, that seems selfish. A means by which you can somehow validate premature sexual pursuit? Well, that's undeniably sinful. Dating is a Western contemporary understanding of how you are transferred from singleness to marriage. It's getting to know someone to prayerfully consider, should I marry them? But then to be married to somebody that's not a Christian, God says, stay right there. Don't go anywhere. You made a decision to marry somebody who is not in Christ, And as a result of that, you now have to stick with that. And you're now going to live to the reality of that. Now, in humility, you want that person to know what you know, which is there's forgiveness in Christ. You want them to share the love that you have for the Lord. You hope for them, and so you want to serve them and love them, be a godly example to them in your marriage, if you're a husband, if you're a wife. But I think too oftentimes we hope we can just somehow make bad decisions, erase the consequences, bad decisions, erase the consequences. Let me go into less relational and more financial. How many of us have made impulsive, immature, bad financial decisions that we did not pray about? And we're sitting under a stack of credit card debt because of it. We, we bought cars that we can't really support. We committed to leases that we really are not ready to have. And, and we feel like we're drowning underwater. And we would wish that we could somehow just make all that go away. And God oftentimes says, No, no, wait a second. Let me get your attention. You're going to have to learn a lesson here that might take years to pay off. What's the lesson? Lessons let's rewind the clock and go back to how were those decisions made to begin with? Was it truly. Simply a matter of intuition? This just seems right to me. I've been around long enough. I've got enough experience. I've got enough intelligence. I Look at other things I've done. Look at the history of good decisions I've made. Or did you say, Lord, what do you want? Genuinely, fully, completely, what do you want? So a question for you for reflection is, where do you need to start including prayer in your life? Where do you need to start including prayer in your life? Relationships, finances, education, career? What we've learned today from Joshua chapter nine is that the lack of prayer demonstrates self-reliance, which will have lasting consequences. Now, listen, I started with maybe some... um, some bubble bursting moments of vitamin water and Gerber baby formula, and your diesel Volkswagen cars, and your airborns that you're like, wait a minute, I just got suckered, I was just buying vitamins? False advertising. You know who has never falsely advertised? The Lord. Everything the Lord promises the Lord accomplishes. All the empirical data, all the blind double studies, all of the inquiry investigation, everything the Lord claims to be and do, He is and can accomplish. The question is, are you like the Gibeonites who think, if God comes, I will be judged for all of eternity. And I need to be rescued. But you don't really want God. You just want to avoid consequences. Or are you like Rahab, who says, I not only want to avoid consequences, I don't want to go to hell. I want to know the Lord and the forgiveness of the Lord. I want to enjoy fellowship with Him and His people. Friends, for those of you who are not in Christ, Understand that God extends himself, that you are not known, here's the kicker, you are not known for your sin. If you put your faith in Christ, you can then be known for his righteousness. Never made a bad decision. Never made a foolish mistake. Everything he did was the rightful obedience of God and all of that credit is given to you simply, here's the kicker, by faith alone. There's nothing you can do to deserve that. No pledge you can make to earn it. It's simply by faith in Christ. And friends, for those of you, and I think a vast majority of you, for those of you who are in Christ, who are Christians, who truly love the Lord and desire to live for Him, then learn from your, if you will, older brothers or sisters, learn from the Israelites here to realize the lesson. Stop living by your own intuition and live by faith, in the Lord, as seen by your prayers to him. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.